Hi, I want to welcome everyone to um, our final episode of the Linton Podcast. Um, Paul and I have really been enjoying um, providing um, this scriptural um, take and providing digging into scripture and really helping myself and Paul and everyone who's listening just to um, understand the scriptures better because we know the scriptures are the very words of God and it is the very words of God that have the power to change our hearts and minds and and we are allowing these words of God to transform our hearts and minds so that um, each and every day um, that we go out um, we have the words of God close to our hearts. So we hope that this podcast has helped strengthen you in your relationship with God. I know it has for me and for Paul. Um, this research and has really been fantastic for me and just understanding my Savior better. Um, so I, this last episode is going to be on the resurrection, on the celebration of Jesus' life um, being resurrected from the grave. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. And again, to remind you, we're reading from the NIV version. Um, and before we get started, Paul is going to give us a little context. Um, before we start reading the pa- passage, a context to everything that has happened um, just before this resurrection morning. So a week ago, we left Jesus hanging on the cross in his final hours of life. And to get us from where we were then to where we take off from today, we have to fill in a, a few details. First, uh, Jesus breathed his last around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so what happened immediately after uh, was that a man named Joseph of Arimathea uh, took action to ensure that Jesus would receive a respectful burial. Joseph only gets a, a few lines of airtime in all of Scripture, but in piecing together some of the clues we have about him, uh, both in Scripture and, and outside of that, we find out that he was actually a member of the Jewish ruling council, uh, one that we're, we're told did not agree with their decision to crucify Jesus. Not only was he a member of the council in, in disagreement, but he was secretly a follower of Jesus um, and had been, had been in, intrigued by Jesus' ministry, some of his teachings, and sought him out. Uh, so it would seem that uh, he had been torn throughout Jesus' ministry on how to both follow Jesus and, and maintain his status on the council. Uh, Jesus' passion and, and death in this preceding week apparently had inspired him to action. And, and at this point, he was willing to step out on faith and, and claim his faith and, and his connection to Jesus, even to the point of risking approaching Pilate to request permission to bury Jesus' body, uh, probably making use of his own family's tomb uh, that had already been in his possession. The law required Jews to bury their dead the same day of their death, a little bit different uh, tradition dating back to the Old Testament. This was particularly important in this context with the Passover celebrations beginning that night at sundown. It's already 3 o'clock, so Jesus' body was quickly wrapped in linen and buried uh, that Friday evening. Several of the women who had been disciples of Jesus were looking on as Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus' body in the tomb, and this is how they know two days later where to go on Easter Sunday morning on the other side of the Sabbath uh, to care for Jesus' body. So that brings us to that Easter Sunday morning, Luke 24, once again, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to follow along if you have it open in front of you, or just uh, sit back and soak in the Word of God uh, from the Gospel of Luke. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, 
they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. There was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So as we look at verse 1, um, and it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Um, so again, as Paul had mentioned earlier, um, Jesus was crucified on Friday, um, and then they laid his body in the tomb, and it was sealed uh, by the Roman soldiers until it was discovered by the women um, this early Sunday morning. And now we discover who these women are later on in the passage, and I'll, and I'll wait to share a little bit of uh, details about who these women are. Um, but it's also important to focus in on uh, the first day of the week, um, and that was Sunday. And this is important because that's the reason why Christians worship on Sunday. If you ever wondered why Sunday is a Christian day of worship, um, it is because Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead. Um, so really, every time we come to church on Sunday, it's a celebration of the resurrection. Um, so you re really can have a resurrection celebration every Sunday um, that we go to church um, because it's because of his resurrection we worship on Sunday. So Sunday is always a special day. Um, the women were taking spices and other alloys and ointments to prepare the body for decay. Um, presumably, um, these women are finishing probably which was a hasty. Um, when Jesus had died on Friday, we can imagine that um, Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus probably had a hastily or taking care of Jesus' body off the cross and probably didn't have time to do it as properly and as well as, as they may have wanted. Um, so it's assumed that these women are going back to kind of tidy things up and finish, um, just assuming that um, preparing the body for decay. And um, the women are coming to properly just finish um, the job. As we turn to verse 2 and beyond, we find this. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So once again, uh, Stephen was discussing the, the bringing of spices. As the women came to the tomb, they had spices with them, which tells us they were clearly looking to prepare a dead body uh, for what was to come not to be greeted by a stone rolled away in an empty tomb, uh, but of course that's exactly what they found. Some distance away, uh, certainly they could see that the stone covering the tomb's opening had been moved. Uh, now my, my research in uh, first century Israel of these uh, tombs, 
and uh, the places where people were laid to rest, I, I found out it was actually uh, surprisingly rare to have a round rolling stone to close one's tomb uh, at this time. But Joseph of Arimathea, who had loaned Jesus this tomb, as we said, seems to have been a, a wealthy and an influential man. So maybe this explains why this particular tomb had that type of enclosure. But these round stones weighed several tons and uh, were rolled into a groove in the grounds uh, that was kind of chiseled out just outside the opening of the tomb and so that that stone could roll back and forth in that groove and the women would have been unable to move it themselves and of course they would have been puzzled as they approached the tomb to see that somebody else had already moved it as we notice though in, in these two verses they did not know that Jesus' body was gone until they entered the tomb they saw the stone rolled away but to them they didn't connect automatically his body would have disappeared uh, you see, even in first century Israel, these tombs weren't simply just holes dug out of a rock uh, to toss a body into. I think um, prior to studying this or, or having uh, blessed it to have been there, you know, I would have pictured uh, tombs at this time just a, a, a space dug out of a rock large enough to fit a body and somehow close it in. Um, but in fact, these tombs had often at least two rooms and multiple niches within them to place bodies. So these people were good at working with rocks because there were a lot of rocks around. And so they took the trouble to uh, make these tombs proper. There would always be an outer room uh, where the bodies were not laid, where people could in fact gather and, and be together in times of mourning. And then an inner room or perhaps multiple inner rooms where the bodies uh, were laid on small stone benches that were carved into the rock. Uh, so they wouldn't have noted that Jesus' body was missing until stepping into the tomb, being able to see from that, that uh, outer room into the inner room where they expected to find Jesus' body. Only then would they have noted uh, that Jesus had, uh, in fact, disappeared. And then here we have in verse 4, it says, While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So... Just imagine, so you have the, the women are perplexed, they're confused, they, they don't know what's going on. Um, they don't, they don't how, how could this possibly happen? And you could just imagine a, a giant stone is rolled away. Um, there's so many questions that would hit your mind. And not only that, but the tomb is empty. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, um, two men appear with gleaming clothes, um, like lightning. And if through the Gospels, you also remember the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, his clothes were also gleaming like lightning um, and were white, like bleached white. And so there's undoubtedly these are heavenly visitors. Um, and this is especially true because you can tell by the woman's reaction, they're they are bowing down in fright, um, their faces to the ground which is a typical reaction to how people react when they see angels in Scripture. Um, I know we kind of have, especially in our culture, uh, an image of angels that doesn't match a sense of shock and awe. Um, when angels appear to people, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's almost like your breath is taken away, and people are instantly frightened. Um, and it's evidenced by these women bowing down, um, their faces to the ground, and it's also interesting that, um, that just as angels announce the birth of Jesus, we have angels announcing the resurrection of Jesus. So it's, it's interesting here that we kind of have angels at, at the beginning and the end as, as bookends to Jesus' ministry 
as angels, if you remember, um, when Jesus was born, announced to the shepherds Jesus' birth. And then now you have angels announcing to these women um, Jesus' resurrection. And one of the, the uh, little facts, uh, tidbits that I unearthed this past week, I had no clue until now, um, that one of the requirements in the law was that if a, a certain announcement was to be made as uh, to, to the witnessing of a great event or some, some uh, important fact, it was required that it uh, be witnessed to by more than one person, by two or more. And I always wondered why, why there needed to be two angels. Why was there two glowing guys here in the tomb? And uh, I think it's uh, God's way of accommodating that law that was established uh, way back in the Old Testament that uh, there were needed to be two uh, to witness to the fact that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. So Stephen gave us a bit of a preview rolling into verse 5 here. Uh, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? So, uh, once again, the bowing uh, down, the prostrating oneself, this was a natural reaction to uh, seeing angels in, in Scripture, or in fact, uh, throughout their culture, uh, bowing and prostrating oneself was a form of reverence and, and humbling oneself before another person. Um, so, they would do that before a king, before a queen. Um, if they had wronged somebody, they would humble themselves and, and bow before them um, in submission to them. And uh, that's exactly what we see happening right here. I, I would wonder what I would do if all of a sudden I was face to face with two angels. I'd like to think that I would have this automatic reaction of, of kind of submission and deference and somehow indicate um, honor and, and uh, submission to them. Uh, but it was really drilled into the, the heads of these women based on their culture and tradition that that's what you do in any such situation. I don't know that that's the case for us, so I'm not sure exactly how I would react, but these women uh, clearly have an, an automatic reaction to, to demonstrate um, deference to these angels. And I can only imagine the, the emotional roller coaster that they're on here. Uh, think about these women from just a, a few days ago, this place of intense grief in, in watching Jesus die upon the cross, the, the horrific murder of their loved one, and all of a sudden, um, two days having passed, they arrive in the tomb, and they're, they're confused and panicked by uh, his body having gone missing, and they only have a few seconds to process that before all of a sudden, on top of that, they got two angels standing right next to them. So the uh, whirlwind of these few days would have clearly changed their lives, their hearts, uh, forever. And that was uh, indicated in, in what we know about these women uh, then and moving forward and, and especially the other disciples and how they experienced these events and how it changed them forever. Uh, so the words the angel speaks uh, clearly solidify this transformation um, and exactly what uh, they probably didn't suspect until the angels showed up when they say, why do you look for the living among the dead? So uh, all of a sudden, it was uh, a missing body was turned into a, a resurrected body, a, a living body. And I can only imagine also being the angel in that situation, right? I, I don't know how to put myself in the mind of an angel, but imagine being the angel that was assigned the task of uh, descending to earth and announcing to all of humanity uh, that their long-awaited Savior that had been killed and uh, all hope was lost all of a sudden that that Savior was uh, raised from the dead and that all of uh, eternity and, and their salvation uh, could not be secured uh, simply through accepting that fact. Uh, so I'm, 
just mesmerized by the role of both these women in the situation and the angel who was able to announce uh, the incredible news that Jesus was alive. Yes, and then continuing on with what the angels have said in verse 6, it says, He is not here, he has risen. Remember, um, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. And of course, this had to speak volumes to them when they hear he is not here, he is risen. Um, you can imagine that, that the Jesus they saw die a very public death is not in the tomb anymore. And not because his body was taken, but because he was risen. Um, his, he has risen out of death. And, and of course, to all of us, um, death is the most powerful and the final destination for all of humanity. Death is the one thing that equals all of us. Death is, um, is one enemy that no one can defeat. But Jesus has risen from that. And the angel speaks an important phrase for every Christian. And, and this is um, what the angels say next is important for all Christians. Is the angels say, remember how he told you. Isn't it interesting, I think, throughout Scripture, to remember is, is one of the important aspects of the Christian faith, to remember, to remember, to remember. The women have forgotten, and, or the women had either forgotten or not taken serious Jesus' words about his resurrection. Um, as the angels had, the angels had remembered what Jesus had said. Um, they remembered the words of Jesus. To the angels, this was something that they just assumed would happen. Um, because as Christians, we always have to remember what he has said to us. And the angels, in their remembrance, remember the words of Jesus. I'll uh, help us navigate the next three verses, starting in 7. The Son of Man, these are um, the words that the angels call the women to remember. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. So a couple of things happening here in this chunk of, of Scripture. First of all, the angels are accommodating these uh, women by actually repeating Jesus' exact words here when he had first uh, announced uh, this to his followers. We're looking back uh, once again at another reference to Jesus's transfiguration and that time period that uh, had occurred earlier in, in his ministry. Um, occasionally during Jesus's ministry with his people or with the, with the, the larger uh, people, the crowds, he'd kind of briefly hit the pause button, right, and pull aside his, his closer disciples to pour into them more intensely. So uh, the transfiguration when Jesus revealed uh, himself, God, in fact, revealed Jesus in, in all his glory, along with Moses and Elijah uh, on top of the mountain to uh, three of Jesus' closest disciples. It was one of those moments when Jesus had opportunity to pour directly into several of his uh, inner circle. Shortly after that, in kind of the same, uh, the same stretch, Jesus sat down with all of his disciples in Galilee and predicted his death for them uh, the second time. This is the second time around. And in that prediction... If we were to look back on it, we'd see three elements. One, Jesus told them he was going to be betrayed. Two, he was going to be killed. And three, he would be raised back to life. So the, the angels are reciting Jesus' exact words that he had said to his disciples um, months before this. 
And uh, in doing so, they're calling these women, as Jesus uh, impressed the importance of to us, to remember uh, just one instance where the women were uh, responsible and could be benefited by remembering something Jesus had taught them or told them. Uh, so to remember, but also in, in some ways a rebuke uh, on these women. And uh, they're getting rebuked for the same thing we deserve to be rebuked uh, for on many occasions, even to this day, um, hearing Jesus's words and not fully soaking them in, perhaps not understanding them, not applying them, uh, not really giving them the importance they deserve. So these uh, women are on, on the other side of this rebuke, but to their credit, it finally clicks. And with the help of these angels, they, they finally remember. They connect the dots and uh, they remember what Jesus had told them. Matthew 17, 22 is exactly where we find Jesus' second prediction of his death. And uh, another thing I find interesting here is um, we look back at that passage and we're told when Jesus makes this prediction that he's teaching, he's talking to his disciples. Um, so a, a little nugget of uh, kind of fun information on the side here we pull out of this. For these women to remember having been told that by Jesus, they had to have been in that Matthew 17 passage uh, counted among his disciples. A lot of times we hear uh, Jesus sitting down with his disciples, we think of Jesus and these 12 guys hanging out in a room together or, or out in a field together. Clearly, this was not always the case. Uh, throughout the Gospels, we have all these vague references to Jesus having other disciples. We know he had kind of an inner circle, an outer circle, an even larger circle. He had all these circles, uh, all these disciples. I think what we need to take from this is when we hear Jesus hanging out with his disciples, it's, it's not necessarily just the 12 or even when it says it's the 12 sometimes there are women uh, that are in the mix that are present in those moments um, that do not get represented by the text and uh, Jesus was pouring into them just as he was the 12 so uh, Jesus in defiance of cultural norms had women in his inner circle something we can uh, celebrate especially today now finally arriving at verse 9 uh, verse 9 works even further to inform this line of thinking. These women, who we're, we're finally going to identify in just a moment, verse 10, they return from the tomb, and it's at the very least implied, made even more likely by the other gospel accounts we won't look at just this moment, but that the disciples were already together in one space when the women returned from the tomb. So they have to tell this incredible news to all of their bodies, to all the other disciples. It would seem that they only have to go to one place to do so. The disciples are kind of sheltered together, uh, probably out of fear, right? Uh, trying to protect themselves. Both the Romans and the Jewish leaders had just crucified uh, the, the leader of their order. So they're, they're in fear uh, for their own lives. Uh, also probably seeking moral support from, from their friends and, and loved ones. Uh, much like we would gather after uh, losing a loved one with friends and family, others who we can share memories with. But whatever the case, we're told that they share the news with the 11 and the others. So one more demonstration of this notion, it wasn't just the 11. Judas obviously already gone at this point. Uh, Jesus had an even larger circle of followers, and especially in these critical moments, uh, they're in the mix. They are part of this band of disciples who are uh, receiving this news and, and looking to respond on the other side. So then looking at... Um, and I'll be taking the next two verses, verses 10 and verses 11. Um, it was Mary Magdalene. So now we're getting specifically who these women are. Um, it says it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, 
and the others with them who told this to the, to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So um, in verse 10, we finally, Luke identifies who these women were. And um, the three he mentions by name, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and the Mary mother, James, um, these three, um, especially Mary Magdalene and Joanna, have important roles throughout this gospel. We know Mary Magdalene is mentioned as um, having seven demons that Jesus cast out. Um, Mary Magdalene's also mentioned at the crucifixion and the resurrection. So in Mark 15:40, she's mentioned at the crucifixion. And then in all the gospels, she's mentioned here at the resurrection. Um, and then Joanna is also mentioned in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. Um, and she was a woman who had great power and influence, and she followed Jesus and helped provide for Jesus and the disciples' need. Um, she also helped manage Herod's affairs as a steward um, of his household. So she had great clout, great influence, and was one of the followers of Jesus. Um, and then he also mentions Mary, the mother of James, but this is the only time she is mentioned here in the resurrection, but... I have no doubt that she also had a big role as well, uh, especially to be mentioned here by name in Luke's gospel. Um, it's also important to notice, as Paul mentioned um, just in the last verse, um, it's important to notice that others were there with the women as well. So um, these other women are, appeared and they saw the angels, they saw the empty tomb as well, they heard um, just what these women who are named heard as well. So we always, when, when we think um, of, of these things taking place um, in the scriptures, we have to imagine um, that it's more than just the people who are mentioned by name in the Gospels. There are many people who follow Jesus. Um, and also at the resurrection, there are more than just these three women. So um, this event is something that um, many people had seen and could testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And then looking at verse 11, it says, um, however, even with all these witnesses, so all these, the women who saw it and the others who were with the women who saw it, um, still the disciples didn't believe. Um, they didn't believe their words. Um, a matter of fact, um, they considered their words nonsense, or you could translate it as idle tales, like folk tales. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate. In the first century, the testimony of, of women was not deemed authoritative. And, and it's unfortunate that the apostles at this time were, were, were believing that harmful train of thought that they, they just couldn't believe these women that, that they were coming up with these weird and odd um, seeing that the body was gone. Um, it's unfortunate that the testimony of women here were, was not held with high regard. Um, however, this also speaks um, to the importance of women um, and the historical evidence found in Scripture because if, if the Scriptures, if the gospel, Gospels were some sort of fairy tale or, or folk story, um, that women at this time, women would not have been mentioned at this pivotal event in um, the ministry and the life of Jesus. Um, so for the fact that all the Gospels mention that women were the first ones to see the resurrection of Jesus points to how this text is historical 
And it points also to the importance um, of women that they played in the ministry, of, in Jesus' ministry, in the ministry um, throughout the church, um, and Paul's ministry as well, the importance of women. Um, so, so we have to remember here also that the disciples, the disciples are also <laughs> very afraid, um, probably hiding in some room, um, because they know that with Jesus' death, their life as well was threatened. Um, so you have to imagine women are coming in to very frightened, very fearful disciples. Um, these disciples were probably very skepti- skept- had a lot of skepticism um, to these women's words. Um, so again, when you're imagining um, this happening in real time, you have to imagine that these disciples are not like remembering or hoping and knowing that Jesus is going to be alive. These disciples in real time are, are fearing for their lives, and, and they, they consider everything is all over, that it's all done with. I love the, uh, the point, Stephen, that you made. Um, I, in fact, encountered the same thing that, you know, if somebody was going to make up a story and try and get people to believe it about this, this fake Messiah, right, who got raised from the dead, the last thing they're going to do is make the primary witnesses to this event be a group of women. Uh, so I love that, that point. A few other um, nuggets I, I came across that i got to throw out there that uh, bounce off of what you shared. First of all, I love this Joanna character. Um, she was the wife of a, a guy named Kuza, who was the manager of Herod's household. She said, you said that she was a servant of Herod. How, uh, how much uh, sweet justice is this? Herod's the guy who, who plays a large part in sending Jesus to the cross. Just a couple of days later, it ends up being the wife of one of the, the heads of his household, uh, the, the, one of his main stooges, right, who uh, becomes one of the first witnesses to the undoing of Herod's order to have Jesus killed. So I love that. That's uh, just kind of sweet irony, sweet justice uh, that God, I'm sure, ordained. And my other comment is simply this. You know, with all the cool names they had in the Old Testament, where, where do we get off having everybody in the New Testament named James and Mary? Why can't we mix <laughs> it up, right? Why can't we go back and use some of those other crazy names and mix them in too? So I just have to say that. Uh, verse 12, we, we wrap things up here. Um, in, in fine fashion, uh, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So while everyone else sat there in, in disbelief, Peter does what Peter often does. He, he acts when others are unwilling. So just like you know the time in the boat when everybody else sat there gawking at Jesus, Peter got up and he had to test the waters, right? Same thing here. Everybody else is sitting there gawking at the women, not sure what to think. Peter uh, has to check it out. So perhaps um, perhaps he's inspired. We think back to his last couple of days. He's uh, denied Jesus three times. He's been in hiding the entire time Jesus had been uh, suffering and, and being horrifically uh, murdered. His, his leader, his close friend, uh, maybe all of that compelled him to act here. Maybe he's tired. He's, he's disgusted with himself. He says, I, I need to do something. Um, so I need to figure out the truth of what's going on here. So uh, Peter runs to the tomb. John's account, John's gospel, talks about John also joining him. But here in Luke, Peter has the, the full spotlight. He arrives at the tomb. He bends down to step in, right? And he glances over. Remember the two rooms in the tomb. So he has to go in the tomb, look over at that inner room, at the slab where Jesus' body had been laid. Nobody. All he sees here are the strips 
of linen that Jesus' body had been wrapped in, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, uh, the two religious leaders who had secretly followed Jesus, as, as Stephen uh, said a few minutes ago, had done a hasty job of, of wrapping him up then on Friday night. So those are still laying there. The linens are there. And um, John's gospel, I have to point this out. We'll, we'll close with this little story. Uh, John's gospel points out this. Uh, not here in Luke, so I'm jumping over to John for a second. The separate cloth had been placed over Jesus' face, right? So you got the, the long piece of linen, strips of linen that wrapped Jesus' body. You have this separate cloth, and John tells us that this, this face cloth, this head cloth, was neatly folded and set to the side. So... Uh, so this um, brings um, connection to a Hebrew tradition that I have to share with you for a minute here relating to masters and, and servants from that time period. And you may consider this incredible insight into what's going on here. You may consider it um, just complete lunacy and, and have no connection. Either way, it's, it's fun to consider. Uh, the tradition went like this. When the servant set the dinner table for their master, they would make sure that it was set exactly the way the master wanted it, right? Uh, the, the tableware all set out, and then the servant would wait just out of sight while the master was eating, and the, the servant wouldn't dare touch the table until they were sure the master was finished. So if the master was done eating, they had this, this tradition, he would uh, signal to the servant uh, that he was done by wadding up his napkin on the table and just tossing it in a ball um, on the table, right? And the servant would then know to come clear the table. For in those days, the, the wadded napkin meant, I'm done. I'm, I've completed my meal. I've, I've done uh, with my task. But if the master got up from the table and instead folded his napkin, his cloth napkin, and laid it beside his plate, the servant wouldn't dare touch the table and, and all the, the things on it because the servant knew that the folded napkin meant, I'm not finished yet. The folded napkin meant I am coming back, right, to complete my meal. So is this a great insight and an incredible message that Jesus is sending uh, to Peter, to John, to all his other disciples, to you and me today, that he was returning, that his work had not yet been finished at that moment? Um, I'll leave that to you to decide. Uh, either way, it's an incredible story, uh, tradition that to connect to as we wrap up our uh, Lenten sermon series uh, for today and uh, bid you a fine farewell. I hope you all enjoyed your Easter as, as much as you could and, and found ways to, to find and experience God's joy in the midst of uh, your Easter day and Easter holiday, had opportunities to connect with folks, even with our limited access. Uh, I pray that that was the case for you and that you enjoyed our, our journey through Lent and uh, peeling back the layers of all these various scriptures. Uh, please uh, do be encouraged to make use of the comment box uh, that you'll find just beneath where you click to, to listen to the podcast, even if it's to tell Stephen and I how ridiculous you think we are. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments uh, and get a dialogue going, so please make use of that. Uh, we will be back with you next week, obviously, with a whole new topic, a, a bunch of new material, and uh, we look forward to joining you next week uh, with wherever the Lord leads us. And with that, we'll invite uh, Stephen to close us in a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Um, Lord Jesus, we come to you in prayer. And we know that you are alive at the right hand of the Father. And because of your resurrection, um, we can also be resurrected with you. And I pray, Lord, that we remember the words um, that the angel said. And they encourage us to remember to remember what he has said.
And that is our, our, our task as Christians, to remember your words, because it is your words that bring life. It is your words that bring hope. It is your words that bring peace. It is your words that bring comfort. And at a time like now, your words are most needed. So I pray that we are remembering your words, just as the angel had told the women to remember um, what Jesus had told them. And we know that, Lord Jesus, you will return again someday. And we know, Lord Jesus, that our hope is found in you. And we look forward to your return. And, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.